Welcome to the Ideologue Podcast. I'm Ben Mack, digital editor of Ideologue. In this edition, we speak with MYOB's Karen McKenzie and Centrality's Jerome Forey about the future of crypto and blockchain in New Zealand. Well, thanks for taking the time to have a chat. And it's great to have a chat about not necessarily new technologies, but in a way, new technologies, but technologies that are really impacting our world and where things are going to be going within the next few years and things that are already here. So we've got Karen, we've got Jerome, people who are doing some incredible stuff in the space of blockchain and crypto. And I guess the first question really for you, Jerome, is you're with Centrality, and as you've told me, is blockchain and not crypto. So the first question is, when we're talking about blockchain and crypto, what are the main differences? Good question. Bitcoin is the first use case that leveraged blockchain to provide disintermediation and trustless transactions. The problem it specifically solved was one, solved was one of double spent. So in the digital world, it's very easy to replicate digital assets and it's very difficult to validate whether the person owns that digital asset and how many times they've sold it. And so in the case of blockchain, what it does for Bitcoin is it provides a mechanism where you know that um, the person that has that digital asset is the actual owner of it and that when they send that asset they can't sell it to another person. So the scenario before blockchain would be if someone had a a movie ticket, for example, and they sold it on an an auction site, it's possible for that person to sell that same movie ticket to multiple people. It's also possible that that person actually never owned the movie ticket in the first place, that they just, you know, copy and paste an image off the internet. Blockchain solves that problem that provides trust so that peer-to-peer, whether it's person-to-person, point-to-point, peer-to-peer, transactions can take place directly and typically at much lower cost than a a traditional transaction flow that has sometimes up to 10 different parties involved in that transaction. Mm, So that sounds like that can solve the issue of, I'm just thinking out loud as an example right now, we have All Blacks tests coming up, for example, the issue of, say, somebody just standing around on a street corner Hawking what they claim to be, you know, all blacks tickets for the front row or something like that. It sounds like with blockchain we can verify that and handle everything at a much lower cost. Precisely. It provides the ability for two people or entities to transact securely in a trustful way when they don't know each other. Oh, fantastic. Very cool. And we talk about crypto as well, and I mean Karen, you've done quite a lot of stuff in the space of crypto and go around to conferences and, well, just somebody that knows a lot about crypto, really. I guess the question, maybe it's a bit of a macro question to kick off with off the bat, is where, when we talk about New Zealand, are we at with crypto right now? It's a, and again, a great question. I think it's, it's even not just a New Zealand question, it's where are we at full stop with blockchain or crypto technologies? Um, and a story I tell that seems to resonate with a lot of people is we're effectively in 1994, right? 1994 was the birth of what we know of the internet today, the WWW, right? 
Um, and in those days, there were some of us out there, we were building websites and people were like, what are you doing? You know, we'd say, you're gonna run your business on this, you're gonna you know, revolutionize the world. Um, people were like, no, no, you're, you're loopy, you're mad, go back to your corner. Uh, whereas today, you, you, I mean, you're silly if you're not running your business on the internet some way and look at all the businesses that are internet businesses. Uh, and in many cases, we are the same space with, with crypto uh, and, and blockchain. It is emerging, it is new. Uh, teams like Centrality are doing incredible stuff that will fundamentally change the way we, we interact and we do commerce. Um, it's exciting. Uh, and, and we've got teams who are trying to solve some of the big uh, headaches and hurdles that we have to go through. Um, New Zealand as a country is, is, is interesting because on, on one hand you think that you know we've got access to renewable energy, we've got access to, to, to um, all the resources and things that will make it a great place to either mine um, or a great place, we've got great ingenuity in this country to solve problems. Uh, we were the banking testbed of the world. Um, so a lot of these infrastructural bits and pieces are in place. Um, but on one hand, you know, it feels like we're a bit behind when it comes to government desire to embrace, to explore, to support. Uh, and so other countries around the world, um, often in Europe or third world countries, often have a bit more forward thinking governance coming through, some regulations, some securities and that sort of stuff. So New Zealand from a government point of view feels like it's a little bit behind, but from a engineering, from a, um, a growth, from a startup point of view, I mean, you've got Centrality, you've got Navcoin, you've got Silo, you've got all these incredible blockchain technology companies coming through. Um, so there's a real aptitude to change here. Uh, and they're impacting the rest of the world. Um, but I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for New Zealand to really jump ahead in that space. Mm. Well, speaking of the opportunity to jump ahead, I mean, we talk about New Zealand all the time being the testbed of the world of new technologies and new ideas. But it seems that, well, you don't hear when we talk about blockchain and crypto, we don't hear a lot about things that are specifically happening in New Zealand in that space. Which is interesting because it seems to be in the rest of the world whenever anything happens, in the space of crypto or blockchain that seems to make worldwide headlines. So I guess the question for either of you is, I mean, I would imagine there is some exciting stuff that's happening right here in New Zealand right now, but why aren't we hearing about it more? I've actually been really pleased with the positive coverage Centralities had in the media. Um, we even made it you know, on the news as one of the first um, pieces and we've had a lot of support from from governments from from our from the government from bank political parties centrality itself when we did our token generating event received to its smart contract over 300 million dollars and sold 80 million dollars there was a cap on on it um, in six minutes so as far as being on the global stage we we're number seven for the largest ICO TGE. I think we we're at the time there or thereabouts the largest as far as funds pledged to the smart contract and definitely one of the fastest. Six minutes is, I'm not aware of anyone else that was faster in selling out their token. So well and truly on the world stage and definitely leading well, in this. this, in this already been six minutes, so that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, no, we, and the global community, and, and I think the other thing, we're talking about this in the office this morning, um, you know, Kiwis are a humble um, society and, and we tend to not uh, toot our own horns as, as loud as maybe we should, but as a society, what we, we value is, is, is fairness. So in America, freedom's obviously, you know, well up there, freedom of speech, and I guess in the context of America's 
cup, you know, freedom to um, change the rules that potentially <laughs> were advantageous to their team. But he here in New Zealand, we value fairness. We value equality. And, you know, when it was our turn to do the rules for the America's Cup, we did them in a way that we thought would be fair for all of the participants. Blockchain is all about that. It's creating fairness between a community within an ecosystem because the current economic model is really get around growth and I guess the big companies getting bigger, uh, particularly with, with data and monetizing people as, as products. Blockchain is essentially, a, the purists would not call it a database, but for the context of this, it's a distributed database or distributed ledger technology. The most valuable asset in the world right now is data. Um, and if you concentrate that data for a, with a couple of companies, and the shareholders expect a return on that investment in that centralized compute and, and service, then you also concentrate the, the wealth and you extract value uh, from individuals for the benefit benefactors of those servers, typically the, the shareholders. Blockchain disintermediates those entities, um, and those entities are currently, you know, their value capture is completely disproportionate to their value creation. And so what it enables, and, and why blockchain, and why I think it's resonating well with New Zealand from a fairness and values perspective is it distributes that value um, more equitably between participants. So I, I actually think the support, well at least the support centrality's had from the community and from a whole lot of participants has been, it's, it's well and truly exceeded my ex expectations um, in, in many respects, so yeah. Very cool. You talk about fairness, and Karen, you said something really interesting just before we started this podcast, was you talked about how with crypto and with blockchain, we could be, in a way, sort of cutting back on certain aspects of crime. For example, you talked about some things that are happening in Australia, for example, outlawing cash transactions, more than $10,000, for example, possibly looking at phasing out $100 bills, for example, as well. And I thought that was just something really interesting that you mentioned. So what is the potential of crypto and a blockchain to create, as you, as you mentioned, Jerome, a fairer society? I mean, could that help cut back on sort of crime and, you know, dark money, that kind of thing? Yeah, look, it's, it's interesting. I think where we go with that is that a lot of the media always immediately goes straight to Bitcoin being used in the dark web, you know, and its background. And you sort of look at that, it'd be really interesting to know the numbers, what percentage of that was actually that versus current currencies. And current currencies have been used for illegal activities for, for, for many, many years. Uh, there's some recent um, stuff coming out of Australia uh, where the government has banned cash purchases over $10,000. You, you can't buy something with cash over $10,000. And they're looking seriously at can they remove the $100 bill and potentially the $50 bill 12 months later. Um, and so the government naturally is driving to a digital economy. Um, now, of course, we've still, we're still doing digital systems through Visa and through um, Amex, and uh, you know, those sort of things exist on a fiat mindset now. Um, crypto payments, crypto tools may well be a way down that path. Brisbane Airport have just rolled out at every single retailer there the ability to, to buy and trade with crypto um, tokens, so Litecoin, um, Ethereum, Bitcoin, etc. So we're seeing a change in that mindset. Will it create a fairer way or a way to track or remove crime, I think the reality is humans are humans. We'll always find ways to be greedy, we'll always find ways to try and one-up, we'll always try and find ways to, to um, do dodgy activities. Um, 
the, the traceability, the trackability, uh, the accountability that can be built into blockchain services um, might offer some opportunities, uh, but it's more likely going to be the, the convergence of other technology, um, you know, computer vision, AI, machine learning, um, IoT, and blockchain, and transaction, and open banking, all coming together that give you a bigger picture of a person or an activity or something where you might be able to monitor for illegal activities. Um, but will the, will the currency itself do that? I, I don't think so, no. Mm. Interesting. And so one of the questions as well when we're talking about crypto and blockchain, of course, as well, is the energy involved with it a lot of the time. I mean, that's something that seems to come up time and time again, just in terms of this uh, project that I've been personally working on at the moment, looking at how to turn basically a, a home or a work computer into a mining, mining machine, for example, is it's talked about all the time, the amount of electricity that is required for things such yeah. as this. Are there ways that we can sort of get around that energy requirement and what are some of the implications for our energy needs in the future? And I guess the first question is why, why is so much energy needed to mine cryptocurrencies and for sometimes some of these blockchain transactions? What's the reasoning behind that? Um, look, great, great question. It's going to be fascinating to watch how you go with, with turning your laptop into a, into a mining machine. Um, would I undertake that? Probably not. Um, you know, it's, it, th that machine is built as a general computer, right? It's made for you to do general activities uh, and it's optimized for running general um, algorithms. When you try and run highly specific, very complex math-based algorithms around um, the proof of work, the consensus and all the bits and pieces that are involved in that, uh, it's very intensive. Uh, a friend of mine built an Ethereum mining machine. Um, it had a standard CPU in it, and I think he said eight or twelve GPU cards uh, built into this machine. And it would whir away and just suck all this power. Um, and how much money did he make out of it? Um, not a lot at all um, out of it. The new machines are what we call code on silicon. So they're effectively dumb machines. They don't do anything other than connect to a network and run, it, run this algorithm, uh, and that's all they do. They're highly efficient and highly focused on that. But these are complex processes, right? And, and, and the, the amount of power needed to use to set up all the machines is, is insane. And I, Jerome, you've got some good numbers uh, around some of this sort of stuff um, uh, and processing. But, you know, the, these are really, really complex things. I think someone was saying, if you could uh, get, what was it, 51% uh, hack, is if you could, could access 51% of the Bitcoin um, network to make a change, it's something like you need the entire world's consumption for 10 minutes to try and get and make this change, right? We were talking about the, the, but the volume of computers, you're using so many machines, you're using so many processes and that sort of stuff to, to do that. Um, the newer tools and newer technologies are, do, are approaching it differently, uh, solving it faster, solving it easier. And, and again, it's like that old story of 1994. If you think about the scale of the web, could you have built Twitter in 1994? No, the technology just wasn't available. The systems would have been so slow and so cumbersome, whereas today you can do that and it scales and it's fast and it's highly efficient. Um, we will get to much more efficient systems um, very, very soon uh, as that goes on uh, and expands over time. Yeah. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And you mentioned, Jerome, that you're doing something really interesting with centrality when we talk about sort of getting around some of those issues, something that's a little bit different is the idea of giving users, if I understand it right, incentives for using devices or for storage? Correct. We see a future where it's going to be a bit of yin and yang with centralized compute, so SaaS, um, you know, infrastructure as a service type companies, and decentralized 
compute and storage. And we see a future where users will be incentivized um, and sufficiently rewarded if their devices are used to perform certain functions, particularly the, the compute and the, the storage type services. You know, these smartphones now are pretty much supercomputers in your pockets, and there's definitely an element of, of utilization across the board where, you know, it's very rare that, you know, people would use their device more than 50% of the time. Obviously, we're, you know, sleeping at points in time. We don't use all of the storage. They're coming out with more and more storage. A lot of people are moving certain aspects of that off their de local devices, but they're still available. So we see some of that occurring, and we also see new blockchain technologies that can run the consensus uh, processes um, or at least participate within the, the network on a mobile device as opposed to needing a, a laptop or a mining rig and a whole lot of NVIDIA 1070 GPUs to do some pretty complex um, math, math cryptography. Well, when we talk about the idea of you know using devices for storage, especially since you mentioned this time people are sleeping, not using their devices, that kind of thing, what exactly, I guess the kind of question a lot of listeners might have, what are we talking about that we're storing? on these devices? I don't think there, there's any limit to what could be stored, to, to be fair. I mean, if you just think about what you would typically put on you know, Dropbox today, it, that could be distributed on phones, laptops, PCs, um, anywhere there's available um, storage. Um, and the owner of that device, which may be an entity or an individual, would be compensated appropriately for the use of that storage. And an interesting thing on that is that um, they reckon that by uh, 2025 we'll have 7 point, uh, 75 billion devices connected to the internet. Uh, Microsoft has some great numbers at the moment around, uh, they think within 18 months, so we're talking 2020 from now, uh, um, you know, a self-drive car will be generating 5 terabytes of data. Uh, an individual will be generating 1.5 gigabytes of data a day. Um, and that's not talking about social media uploads and stuff. This is just stuff about my heartbeat, my pace, my movement, you know, interaction with the house, a smart home will generate 150 gigabytes of data. Um, so when it comes to storage of that, you've you got to think, well, where are we storing that information? What are we doing with it? Uh, and, and, and like Jerome said, the types of data we store, anything, everything, right? Yeah, and even other functions with mesh networks at the moment when you make a, a call or access internet on your device it typically goes to a, a, a cell phone tower and then back down. Uh, mesh networks could provide the ability for devices to talk directly to each other bypassing that tower. Wow, that sounds like that have all kinds of implications for the way we just go about our lives in the future then. Yeah, the what they're calling the fourth industrial revolution, this fusion of digital and physical with big data, AI, blockchain, IoT. And I think the general, you know, they say velocities in your currency and in, in business. Um, we're gonna see some serious uh, change much faster than I think many of us are anticipating. Um, you know, hopefully we can do our bit to make sure the majority of that is for the better. Well, that sounds incredibly exciting, but not necessarily to focus on doom and gloom too terribly much, but one thing I've noticed so far, especially in sort of this project that I've been embarking on and trying to understand how to mine crypto off of one's, you know, work or home computer, basically, is just how incredibly difficult it is to wrap one's head around a lot of stuff. Because you two have done a fantastic job of explaining really simply how a lot of this stuff works. 
But when I try to read about any of this stuff on the internet anywhere, it almost goes completely over my head. And I was thinking to myself, well, I work at a tech publication, and if I'm having a really hard time understanding how any of this stuff works, I mean, surely there must be a massive public need just for knowledge about this. And so what can we do to overcome the, what, what seems to be an education and knowledge gap around blockchain and around cryptocurrencies? I'll take a step of that before if you want. I think it's, you could ask that of almost any technology though, right? We think about self-driving cars. Do people really need to understand the tech of how it works? No, you want to get in the car and push a button and, and know that someone else has solved that. Um, and to me, that's why it's delightful to sit beside someone like Jerome from Centrality, who, incredible team who is solving those problems on behalf of and building this app ecosystem and this infrastructure or this, this digital marketplace of, of other services. So I know that I'll be able to say to people, hey, here's a great point of sale system, or here's a great, um, the one you showed the other day, the appointment uh, reward system, no reward systems, right? Uh, and booking systems. And I can just talk to people about the problem they want to solve. The fact that it's running on blockchain, the fact that cryptocurrency is involved, do they need to know that? No, yes, maybe, but, but the reality is, what are we trying to get to, right? So we're at the moment now where this sort of stuff is still very cutting edge, and so a lot of the content that's written online is written by very smart computer engineers who are talking through it from what they're doing. Uh, the next generation of stuff that's coming now is actually the why, you know, the impact, the stories, the, the how to the everyday person. Uh, the one, that, of course, that's still tricky for them to wrap their head around is, is wallets and, and, and handling the, the coin themselves. But the actual underlying technology, um, very few people are going to mine their own stuff, but they are going to be using blockchain um, just like they're already using AI, just like they're already using big data, just like they're already using that. They just don't know it. It's just called Siri or Alexa or my iPhone. I'm in violent agreement on this one. I, I think much people understand email, but they don't talk about SMTP, which is the protocol that underpins it all. Uh, equally, TCP, IP, UDP, HTTP, the general people know they can just go to a website and type in an address and, and, and go there. Blockchain will get there, in, in my view. It will be a lot more friendly for consumers, but I think the ultimate goal is for the consumer to not necessarily be aware, um, unless they, they, they want or, or need to, that blockchain is underpinning the experience that they're having um, either a, you know, in a digital environment. Mm. Well, something you mentioned also just before this conversation, Karen, you talked about there were some schools in Australasia right now that were doing some really cool stuff with educating young people about blockchain and cryptocurrency. You mentioned, I believe it was Melbourne Girls mm. Grammar School was doing mm. some really interesting stuff mm. in that space. And you mentioned that sort of something that we might need to consider here in New Zealand would be having courses teaching us some of this stuff. I, I think it's the same with anything, you know, and it's, it's awesome to see schools embracing modern technology. You've got, you know, things like Sphero and, and little robots and Scratch and stuff that kids are, are starting to <clears throat> learn causality. Uh, you know, if this happens, then that happens. Uh, Melbourne Girls Grammar, uh, and, I, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say there will be schools in New Zealand doing this, I just know it, uh, where they're running courses um, on entrepreneurship or innovation, and, and one of the ones they have is on, on blockchain and cryptocurrencies, and, and getting, getting them to articulate and understand what are the pains and frustrations. Uh, and it was delightful to actually go to a, cryptology, uh, a blockchain event uh, at the start of the year and have three young women uh, from the school, uh, and I'm, you know, these are 15, 16, 17 year olds, uh, on stage talking in front of this incredible audience uh, around projects that they'd done um, and, and what they were solving in that space. Uh, so, so making this available to, to the kids who want to get into that deeper stuff, 
but also for them who are actually just creating services and, and tools for their friends uh, who don't want to know the nuts and bolts behind the scene, but want to be able to find a, a trusted tutor uh, and then be able to pay that person um, through reward recognition uh, or tokens and such like. So uh, having the schools uh, have more of that or, or things like um, Code Club and, and all, the, all the amazing things that kids have access to around the outside of school today um, to explore and experiment with these things is, is, is fundamental to this growing as well. Because don't forget, that is the generation that will continue to change our world for tomorrow um, and they need access to explore these things. Mm. Well, on that theme of tomorrow, of course, I mean, we always talk about us being ideologue. We're always into the future and what the future might look like and that fun stuff. And, well, it's definitely one of those, you know, big questions, as Yoda said, always in motion the future is, especially it seems with blockchain and crypto. But you two especially would know a lot more about this than just about anybody else. What might the future, particularly of blockchain and crypto in New Zealand, be looking like? Or is saying in New Zealand even a bit of a silly thing to say because is it really a worldwide thing we need to be talking about? I definitely think it's worldwide. I think there's an element of a black swan event around identity at the moment. I think there's a, a societal um, collective conscious around owning your own identity um, understanding who has access to your data. I mean, you know, tomorrow GDPR kicks in. I think people want to have their own identity. It's it's taonga, it's your, it's your national treasure. And I think people want to know how their data is used and have control over that as well. So for me, I think that's probably what we're going to see a lot of um, in New Zealand and globally. And one of the great things about blockchain as it gives the user back control of their identity and, and, and data. So that's what I see in the foreseeable future is probably the, the game game changer. Mm. What about yourself, Karen? Yeah, I, I, I agree totally with that. And, and you know, there's, there's a great story about the uh, Syrian refugee camp that's based in, in Jordan where they've taken identity and put it on the chain and coupled it with tokens and, and are, are proving out in real world the power of giving identity back to somebody uh, or giving you control of your identity. Um, you know, I think it's it's an exciting time, but but as, as you touched on, you know, that, that that opens questions as well. You know, around that sovereignty, around that ownership of the data, who does have access, uh, and those sort of questions. I think it's um, and, and again, like 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 Jerome said as well, and like you sort of hinted at, it's not just a New Zealand thing. It's New Zealand's opportunity to do something with it, absolutely. But it but it it continues that great philosophy we have here of global on day one. You know, let's think beyond the country, let's think openly, uh, and blockchain is that enabler that will uh, allow us to trade internationally um, seamlessly. Um, you know, well, we, are, we are world leaders in, in global trade. Yes. I mean, if you look at the agreements we've done with other countries, um, we're well ahead of the game on, on that front. Mm. Um, mm. Well, this might be a bit of a, uh, you know, I know you don't have a ton of time, Karen, so it's a, a bit of a loaded question, to say the least here, and this might be the question that torpedoes the entire interview, but we'll go for it nonetheless. <laughs> That's where I leave, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll see how this goes. Speaking specifically about cryptocurrency, New Zealand cryptocurrency in, like, let's say, five years from now, 2023, what does it look like? I mean, by, what I mean by that is, like, will we be seeing a wider adoption of crypto in New Zealand? Will we be have moved on to something beyond Bitcoin and it's, Ethereum? It's possibly even bigger than yeah. currency, yeah. to be honest. Um, there'll be forms of value that will be 
easier to trade both digitally and face-to-face, -face, whether that's your creativity, whether it's data, whether it's it's currency or, or compute. So I suggest we schedule time for another discussion on what the future of money looks like because that's a really big question that we uh, should spend some time discussing because it's particularly exciting um, from our perspective. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. I've just come from a workshop in Australia on the future of money and it just it just starts to unravel and it is a massive hole um, that you can go down. And phenomenal stuff yeah. happening in that space where you where you change consumers and producers to swap hats, right? Who used to be a consumer is now a producer. Um, the, the, the microcharging of everything, um, the payment systems, the infrastructure, we have, it, it's a huge, huge space. It'd be a fascinating conversation to have actually, but a lot more than the 30 seconds we've got now. <laughs> no worries at all. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to have a conversation. Really appreciate that. It's been some great, great stuff and hopefully listeners get a lot out of it. A lot out of it too. It's always the awesome always the thing about it. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. To hear more inspiring tales, be sure to check out Idealog on SoundCloud or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at idealog.co.nz.